teacher today and for the next two weeks is our very own Mark Goodwin. We always love having Mark teach. Um, Mark, do you want to come up and begin your presentation? We appreciate it. Well, good morning. Good to, good good morning. to see all of you. I, uh, I want to follow up on one of those announcements that she mentioned. I'm, I'm a little prejudiced on this one. One of those Bible studies that will begin this week is being taught by my wife, Debbie. And uh, it's a class for ladies. It begins tomorrow at 945 in the main sanctuary building, uh, room 250. Um, it's a study on the wife of Abraham, Sarah. And uh, it's entitled Seeking Her Place and Finding God's Grace. If you have any questions about this, just talk to Sarah Beecham. She's already been through this course with her neighborhood Bible study group, and so she can tell you about it. But uh, I'm a little prejudiced. I'm a little upset they won't let men go. But um, anyway, just whatever. I want to begin with two disclaimers this morning, okay? The first is, if I cough, don't get nervous. I've had two COVID tests this past week, and both were negative. I, I simply have the residual effects of a cold, and uh, I feel fine. I just sound terrible sometimes, okay? So don't get too nervous. The second disclaimer, and this is for all of you who are participating with us today. It's a large group uh, online. Uh, you're here by Zoom rather than in person. And many of you are having to self-isolate because of health issues or health vulnerabilities. And uh, we want you to know we support you. Um, we, we know you'd be here if you could. You'd love to be here. And we're grateful for Zoom and the ability to have you participate. Now, the reason it's important for me to say that as I talk about the importance of worship, I'm going to talk a lot about the need for in-person worship, that we gather and be together physically. In no way is that a criticism of our Zoom people, okay? They need our support. They don't need our criticism. They're doing what they need to do and should do, okay? Just want to get that out there so that you understand. As I was preparing uh, for this um, series on worship, I came across the following surveys that I found to be quite disturbing. I hate to quote statistics because all of you know that statistics can be manipulated and they can say about anything you want them to say. And yet the following statistics uh, from my own observations and from what I'm doing uh, and, and observing, I think are a re accurate reflection of what I'm, I'm seeing. According to Gallup in 2020, 47% of US adults belong to a church, a synagogue, or a mosque, 47%. Now, this is not to say they attend, <coughs> attend regularly, it just means they belong, okay? That means, now think about that, that means if you belong to a church, you are part of a minority, okay? We don't like to think about that, but it's true. The percentage is down more than 20 points from the turn of the century. 
And the huge change is primarily due to a rise in Americans who have no religious uh, uh, preference. They're not anti-religion, they just don't have a preference. It's just not a part of who they are, a part of their life. And here's what I find even more disturbing. Only about a fifth, that would be 20%, of Americans attend a church service or a synagogue service on a weekly basis. And yet almost 40% consider themselves to be very religious. Most pastors that I have talked to are terrified at the rate that church members are no longer attending worship services. This is happening in all denominations and in all 50 states. We are facing a crisis of faith unlike anything our nation has ever experienced. So why is this? I think we could give lots of reasons. The advent of COVID in the last two years um, obviously speaks to this issue. But the truth is, um, this decline preceded COVID. COVID has only accelerated it. <clears throat> it's not a new problem. Believe it or not, the early church even had to deal with this somewhat in a few of their congregations. Now, admittedly, in the first century, there was an explosion of growth within the church. But there was also exceptions in the New Testament. Listen to the writer to the Hebrews when he said, and let us consider how we may spur one another toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Now, if anyone had a convincing argument against attending in-person worship services, it would be those early Christians. Their very lives, their family lives were literally threatened if they dared to gather with other believers to worship. Persecution was widespread and it was severe. Yet gathering in with others to sit in the presence of the risen Lord was so important to them that they dared face the consequences. So back to the earlier question, why are we facing such a drastic decline in worship service attendance nationwide across most denominations? Now, at the risk of being oversimplistic, I have come to the conclusion that many very sincere church members do not know what true worship is, and they do not understand why it's absolutely vital to the health of anyone who seeks to be a follower of Christ. Church members often feel that corporate worship is important, but it's not essential. I beg to differ. It is essential. Any pastor of any denomination can tell you that in the past two decades, volumes and volumes of materials have been written to revitalize worship. 
there have been many, many solutions, so to speak, offered, but few, if any of them, are working. Most of the materials that I have seen directed toward making uh, this, uh, confronting this issue is about making worship more exciting or more experience-centered or more entertaining. As one put it, the effect has been like putting a heart patient on a high cholesterol, high salt diet. The very things that cause the sickness in the first place are being used as a cure. <laughs> Tragically, at every point where Christian worship has ceased to be biblical, we have offered non-biblical solutions to fix it. Some while back, uh, Debbie shared a quote with me that describes us to a T. Listen to this. <laughs> Too often, Christians worship work, work at leisure, and play at worship. Let me repeat that. Too often, Christians worship work, work at leisure, and play at worship. So that brings us to the key question that begs to be answered. What does it mean to worship? And what is it? What are we talking about? In the book of the Revelation, uh, and Sandy read from it earlier, we're given a glimpse of the greatest worship service that ever took place or ever will take place. The scene is the throne of God in heaven and the host of heaven and the host of earth are gathered to participate in this great worship service. And Jesus Christ, who in this case is called the Lamb of God, is standing in the center of the throne. And he alone has been found worthy to open the book of God, the book that contains the destiny of the heavens and the earth. Now we're going to pick up the scripture at this point. Listen to this. They sang a new song with these words. By the way, I think you know this, but in heaven, singing is really important. Really important. Okay. It's important here too. You are worthy to take the scroll and break its seals and open it. For you were slaughtered and your blood has ransomed people for, for, for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have caused them to become a kingdom of priests for our God and they will reign on earth. Then I looked again and I heard the voices of thousands, and I get this, and millions of angels around the throne and of the living beings and the elders and they sang in a mighty chorus worthy is the lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessed and then i heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and they sang blessing and honor and glory and power belong to the one sitting on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. And the four living creatures or the living beings said, amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshiped the lamb. Now, this is an amazing scene. It's a beautiful scene. But there's one fundamental reality of this great worship service that we have to observe and understand. And here's the question. Who 
are the participants and who is the audience? Who are the actors, so to speak? And who is the spectator? Is it the lamb? Or is it the congregation who's doing the work? It's not the lamb. Rather, it's the congregation. This is the crucial point that must be rediscovered if we are to rediscover the meaning and vitality of Christian worship. The philosopher Soren Kierkegaard was correct when he said this about worship. God is the spectator, the audience, so to speak. We are the performers. We who lead worship services are the directors who, together with the congregation, retell the gospel story, proclaim the eternal message, offer our thanks, our praise, and our obedience. So here's the crucial point that we've got to rediscover. The focus is not the congregation. It's not our needs. The focus is on God. He's the one who is the center of attention here. Three great truths present themselves in this passage of scripture. Here's the first. The first has to do with the meaning of worship. I love the observation of Anne Lamont. Quote, the difference between you and God is that God doesn't think he is you. <laughs> now we smile when we hear that but it points to an underlying problem that every man woman boy and girl has it's called the problem of sin now i'll tell you on zoom what i'm doing because i know you won't be able to see what i'm about to do to illustrate this <coughs> But uh, here's my favorite illustration of sin, okay? For those of you on Zoom, I just wrote on the board a little S, a great big I, and a little N. Okay, the essence of sin is life with me at the center. It's all about me. I am the one in charge. I am the one who matters most. It's all about me, 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 and I, I, I. And understand that all expressions of sin have their origin in this attitude of self-centeredness. What is best for me? What meets my needs? I am the one who counts. I am the one in charge. Worship of God is the antidote for sin. Think about that. Worship of God is the antidote for sin. To worship means to turn from focusing on me and begin focusing on God. 
It means seeking his will rather than seeking my will. Now help me out here. What is the biblical word for, for turning from sin and turning to God? What is that biblical word? Repentance. Yeah. Repentance. <clears throat> it really disturbs me how infrequently we hear about repentance today. You just don't hear about it. But it was the message. You go back and read the New Testament. It was the message of John the Baptist and Jesus. That was the core message that they had. Repent. In other words, quit doing this and start focusing on God. The first three words of the song of the worshipers in heaven that were in verse 9, they're a beautiful summary of worship. You are worthy. Our English word for worship comes from the Anglo-Saxon word, worth-ship. It means to declare God's worth. Every worship service should be characterized by numerous reminders of the worth of God. And the greatest reminder of all is in verse 9. Look at that. You are worthy. Why? For you were killed. And your blood has ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. So, a true worship service is characterized by the dominance of focusing on God's worth, God's grace. It's, it's about him. It's not about us, folks. It's about him. It really must have come as a shock. To the Christians living in the city of Ephesus in the first century, that Jesus was personally grieved with them. Now, here's what's so interesting about these Christians. They were non-compromising, they were hard workers, and they were faithful church members. They loved each other, they loved the Word of God, they were very much into Bible studies, and they loved lost people. They even endured hardship for Christ. Yet it was to these people that Christ said, I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. So it's a love issue. Their love for Christ had grown cold. That is the first warning of the decay of worship. It just describes us to a T. We are busy doing things, good things, really good things. We're involved. We're very involved, and we're intent. But we have ceased to truly worship God <clears throat> from our hearts, and we have ceased to absolutely adore him. I'm reminded of the owner of a Photoshop who was asked to duplicate a photograph of a college student's girlfriend. As he removed it from the frame, he noticed this inscription on the back of the photograph. My dearest Tom, I love you with all of my heart. I love you more and more each day. I will love you forever and ever. I am yours for all eternity. It was signed Diane, and it had this PS. If we ever break up, 
I want this picture back. <laughs> that sounds a little bit the way we treat God. God commands us to love him with all of our hearts, okay? And, um, but we kind of say, okay, we love him, but, or we love him yet. We love him although, but God commands that we love him with all our hearts without any PS attached. Now, what right does God have to demand such radical love from us? I mean, who does he think he is? How can he demand such allegiance from us? And how can he expect us to, do, to obey that kind of command? Why? Because that is exactly how he loves us. He withholds nothing of himself from us. There's no hesitancy in his commitment to us. And to paraphrase the command that he gave us, he loves us with all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his strength. You ever thought about that? Repeat that with me. He loves me with all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his strength. That is good news. Number two, brings us to the second great truth, the focus of worship. Christ stands at the center, not the congregation, nor the people on the platform. True worship is God-centered not man-centered. A re rediscovery of this one truth by the churches of America would revolutionize our nation. Many churches today offer a man-centered gospel. Let me prove it to you. Listen to how we talk. We talk about the worship experience. And the experience referred to is not how Christ experienced our praise and thanksgiving, but rather how we have come out of this feeling good. We speak about enjoying this or that as though it's done for our sake. Our prayers are even man-centered. We say, Lord, bless my job, my family, my neighbor, my dog. And then we have the nurse to close, I mean, we have the nerve to close it with, for your sake, amen. Now that prayer, I mean, I'm not, that's okay to pray that, but don't, don't say it's for Jesus' sake. <laughs> it's for our sake. Let's, let's just be honest about it. You remember the order of the Lord's Prayer? The first half of that prayer concerns giving to God. Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will. And then after we give God the honor and the praise he, he deserves, then, and only then, it says, give us our daily bread and forgive us our debts and so forth. It's okay to pray for those things, but they're not primary. He is. So first there must be praise and worship and submission and adoration. And then in that context, God bids us to come to him with our needs and our cares and our concerns. Now, we learn from this passage that I read to you from Revelation that the primary activity in heaven is 
worship. Did you know that? <clears throat> so when we pray, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we're actually praying that worship would become the primary activity <clears throat> here. In other words, what is happening in heaven would start happening down here. I mean, why would we want to go to heaven and worship if we don't make worship a priority here? All you Baptists say amen. Amen. Oh, okay. I know your Methodists aren't going to, but I just want to make you stop. I'm, that's terrible. Isn't it? Why do you guys put up with me? I don't even know. I lost my place. Isn't that terrible? <laughs> Anyway, what the church is doing right now in heaven is what the church ought to be doing on earth. That's what he taught us to pray, okay? Unfortunately, our worship often is not like worship in heaven. And I'm not speaking of our UMC, okay? I'm not, please, I'm not. I'm talking about the church in general. Too often our music, and I'm not talking about here, is man-centered and I'm not talking about the style of music. That, to me, is irrelevant. That's not the issue. In the Bible, songs were dominated by excitement and awe of God. Okay? That's what they got excited about. And today's songs are dominated by excitement and awe of the performers and the musicians. And that goes for all styles of music, from the most liturgical to the most contemporary. Again, I'm not referring to a style of music. I'm referring to the focus of the music and those who do it, okay? We have too often cease performing to God and have instead performed to man. So in true Christian worship, Christ stands at the center, not the congregation. We are the participants and we're offering praise to him. So, the question that every Christian worshiper should ask on the way out to the parking lot every Sunday morning when you're leaving the worship service is not, what did I get out of it? But rather, how did I do? How much did I praise God? How much did I adore him? How much did I worship him? How did I do? For we are the performers. God is the audience. Notice verse 10. You have called them to become God's kingdom and his priest. Priests don't receive service. They give service. That is why we call Sunday morning gathering, the gathering, a worship service. You ever thought about that? It's a worship service. It's not a worship program. God forbid. It's not. In fact, the Hebrew word for worship is the same word as service. Worship is a time when the people of God gather together to give service to God. Isn't it amazing how we turn that around? I mean, today's services are designed to serve people, not God. I mean, we, we, we preachers hear this all the time. If we don't put on a good service, they're not going to come back. Or if we don't do this or we don't do that, they're going to get restless. Folks, you have no idea the pressure that pastors receive 
to make the service more entertainment oriented and more oriented to what people like. I know that blessed all of you, but anyway. <laughs> the third truth is, uh, out of this passage is the preparation for service. If we're the performers in worship, and if God is the audience, then it makes sense that we should come prepared, doesn't it? Imagine how you'd feel if you paid two or $300 to hear a world famous musician play at a concert, you arrive at the concert hall only to have him or her show up late and then apologize that they really hadn't had time to practice that week. They had a lot of other pressures, had a lot of things on their mind, and uh, they just hope you'll enjoy their spontaneity. You wouldn't feel real good about that, would you? How much more should Jesus Christ, who ransomed us with his blood, expect us to show up on time for our performance and to have approached it with thought and prayer and careful planning? It's no accident that when God designed his Sabbath, it began on the evening before, not the morning of. You are aware of that, aren't you? <clears throat> the Hebrew Sabbath begins on Friday night at six o'clock. Why? Prepare yourself. You see, God deserved better than have us rush into the sanctuary with our minds filled with what we are planning to get done the rest of the day as soon as we get this worship service over with. <laughs> I wish I could tell you that I've never been guilty of such an attitude. <laughs> I'd be lying. <clears throat> I'm ashamed to confess that. I have to work at this constantly, and you do too. It's a constant choice we have to make. And I'm as guilty as any of you, okay? So I don't want to stand up here tonight like I've got this all figured out and I've got it all together. I'm on this journey with you. And I too am learning. I've got to work at this every week as I come before the Lord. I constantly have to be reminded that when I enter this sanctuary, it's God's sanctuary. And I am his invited guest. I have to come to focus on him and give service to him. He is central, not me. I'd kind of like to be the one here and they're worried about pleasing. Not really, but anyway, that's kind of the attitude we have, isn't it? Folks, we have an amazing God that we get to worship. And the worship that is worthy of him demands our undivided attention and our preparation. Now, wouldn't it be exciting if uh, we entered our sanctuary some Sunday morning and we find everybody in there talking and then discover they're giving praise to the Lord. They're excited about what's going to happen. They're excited to be in his presence. People are all excited about Jesus and, and are eagerly waiting to worship him. And Debbie and I... Uh, we're living in Portland, Oregon. The church where I pastored graciously gave me a three-month sabbatical. <clears throat> and we spent several weeks of that sabbatical visiting various national parks. And one of the parks that we visited was uh, uh, Yellowstone. 
while we were there, we rounded a corner and up this long hill, we saw a large number of people pulling their cars to one side of the road. And we noticed they were getting out of the cars and, and rushing to the side of the road to uh, look down into the valley. And most of them had binoculars and they were obviously excited about something. Well, you can guess what we did. <laughs> we pulled to the side of the road, jumped out of our car with our binoculars. And we asked, you know, what are you looking at? And they said, somebody, we, somebody said they spotted a grizzly bear down there by the river. Well, we joined the crowd now lining the road there, looking for the bear. One dear lady from Tennessee with a heavy Southern accent was saying, I can't see him. <laughs> Another one said, well, I, I think I see something near that dead tree. We got to understand if you've been there, there's only about 5,000 dead trees across that valley. We were all really envious of this one couple who had this powerful telescope on a tripod aimed at the bear. Now, all we could see was this dark black speck that we thought might be a bear. But she's over there describing the antics of the bear. Oh, she said, he's rolling on his back. Now he's looking around. I became a bit cynical when she said, my, he's now scratching his left ear. <laughs> well, about that time, the woman from Tennessee said to her husband, I want one of them things. <laughs> I never did see the bear. I had binoculars. I'm still not sure there was a bear. All I know is a crowd had gathered and they got very excited because someone with certainty said, certainty said that there's a bear out there. And that scene was repeated over and over again. I can't tell you how many times we got out of our car, joined a group of people who were straining to see a bear. That whole experience got me to thinking. <clears throat> What would happen on Sunday mornings if we gathered to worship and a few people actually were intensely looking and listening for Jesus? What if a few people actually came with the expectation they're going to hear a word from Jesus? What if we were as intense and purposeful in our preparation as that couple were who purchased that expensive scope and tripod. I think I know what would happen. A crowd would begin to gather. They would ask us the same thing that we were asking the people who were looking through the scope. What do you see? What's he doing? Does he see us? Do you think maybe I could see him too? There's a beautiful, beautiful characteristic about our God. As we do service to him, as we worship him and adore him, he does not remain as an idle spectator. And he's not a harsh critic. He graciously and mercifully pours out his blessings upon us 
And he steals the show, so to speak. <clears throat> He's the one who deserves all the praise, all the attention. He's the one who deserves the service, but he graciously responds to our worship with offerings of forgiveness, mercy, love, encouragement, and redemption. I can't explain how or why, but I can promise you as you worship and truly praise him from your hearts and glorify him, he's not gonna stand by idly. He'll get involved, he'll respond. You'll find forgiveness, encouragement, and love and redemption. I pray that we would begin to follow the model of these worshipers in heaven. And upon our lips would be the words, the lamb is worthy. The lamb who was killed, he's worthy to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Blessing and honor and glory and power belong to the ones sitting on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. Would you pray with me? Father, forgive us for all the times we have entered casually and flippantly into your presence and thought the worship service was all about us. Forgive us. Teach us how to praise you, to honor you, to focus on you. Father, I need your help in this area. I too often enter into your sanctuary with so much on my mind. Teach me how to be a participant that honors you and calls out to you and praises you and allows you to be the focus. Teach us how to worship. Teach us how to develop a deep personal relationship with you. May we know how to encourage each other in this area. Support each other. May your will be done in our lives. We ask in Christ's name, who loved us enough to die for us. Amen. Amen. Uh, the good news is I didn't go over time. So we have time if you want to, and you don't have to at all. If you have questions or things that you want to comment about or clarifications or disagreements or whatever, um, we'll uh, take just a moment. I won't take long with this, but anyone, you've got a question, you've got an um, observation that uh, you'd like to make. Um, I just know that I feel very deeply about this. Yes. Numbers are definitely going down. Yes. No question about that. What's the strategy or best way for person like me or person over there or person, how do you put more people in the place of worship? Yeah, the question is for you on Zoom, uh, how do we as individuals uh, with the declining numbers that we see, how do we help turn this around? I think the first um, 
the first obvious answer is that all of us make it a priority to become worshipers, okay? And I think as we become worshipers, not just uh, idle observers, but willing participants. And, and here's the strange thing. Two people could be sitting side by side and they look from the outside that they're identical in their response, okay? One can be worshiping and the other one is their minds off in a thousand directions, okay? So I'm not trying to talk about some way you've got to act or some, something. I'm just saying focus, okay? But I'm thinking, um, all I know is that like the illustration I gave, People are attracted to people who are excited about what's going on. And when we are excited about God more than we're excited about anything else, I really truly think that is contagious. I mean, it's like COVID-19. You're just going to catch it one way or the other when people are that excited. And I know that's not a you know st strategy of one, two, three, but I do think it first has to begin with an attitude and rediscovery of what worship is. And, um, you know, as I said, I, I need this as much as anybody, but I really do think a rediscovery of worship um, would truly create questions in people's minds. For instance, I'm convinced that God gave us the sacraments to create questions. Now, think about this. If you are a non-believer and you have no idea what baptism is, and you see someone baptized, whether it's through immersion or sprinkling or whatever, you got questions. What in the world is that about? And they're designed to create questions so that we can give answers and testimony to the grace of God. The same is uh, with the Lord's Supper. Think about a secular person who's never been to church. They don't have any idea. What, what's, what's this deal you eating and drinking this? And in the first century, they literally had to deal with the accusation of cannibalism. I mean, that was one of the things they had to deal with, but it raised questions and gave people the opportunity to share who God was in their life and the transformation that had happened in their life because of him. So I really think uh, there needs to be a rediscovery that actually becomes contagious. Okay. I don't know if that's a good question answer, but that's the best I can do. Uh, anyone else you got a question or comment or observation? Any, anybody? Yes, right here. Mark, I love listening to you. If ever you have a doubt about the worth of what you do, okay. I want you just to get it. You are valuable and listen, I love this. Yeah, I'm not going to repeat what he said over the Zoom. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> it was very nice. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, and I appreciate that. And you're very kind. You're very kind. Uh, other questions or, or observations that you'd like to make? Anyone? Yes. Uh, Mark, I think a lot of our music, uh, I believe we are, we are entertained. That mm -hmm. But a lot of our music also is an expression of praise. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And uh, that. That gets to me like nothing else. Yeah. Uh, let me tell you something. And, and this, part of this is just because I'm an emotional person, okay? One of our first Sundays to attend RUMC, okay, when Debbie and I first came. Um, one of the first times, I, I, it, it brought me to tears. And I, you know, I'm wimpy anyway. But it brought me to tears when the congregation was singing. 
because it had been so long since I'd been in a church where you could actually hear other people around you singing. <laughs> and it just got to me that we were all uniting our voices to God in praise. And collectively, we were honoring him. And I love that. I hope we never lose the, the art of congregational singing. That's what's going on in heaven. I'm going to make some of you mad saying this, but I don't think there's any worship teams in heaven. <laughs> there are lots of choirs in heaven. The, what's the point? The goal is to get everybody involved. In heaven, they're not, you know, standing around watching. They're participating. And the choir, one of the roles of choir plays, which I love, is to prompt us to sing. When the choir sings out during congregational singing, it helps cover up my mess. And I can, you know, I sing too. And I love that. I love that. So they are actually prompters. They are helping us do what we should be doing. And I love that. Uh, but when, when it's, you can't hear the congregation, that's, that's enough of that. Any, anybody else? Just right here and then back there. Yes. Many of the more charismatic things, uh -huh. which are grown. Sure. Sure. When they sing, they raise their hands. Uh -huh. And, you know, that looks like you're at least experiencing it more. Mm -hmm. So I was thinking that maybe as a Methodist, we could do that. Well, we'll, we're going to put you down front to show us how to do that. <laughs> Georgia, for those of you on Zoom, George is saying that he's noticed that the charismatic groups raise their hands when they're saying, maybe we should do that. So we're going to have him show us how that's done. <laughs> no, uh, the point is a lot of charismatic churches are growing. You're right. But what, and I'm not promoting this, but I'm just trying to say it is good to see people excited about what they're doing. Okay. And, and, and not being observers, but being participants. Yeah. Okay. Back in the back. Do you think that a focus on spending time in the word would be helpful? Oh, yeah. Uh, he's asking, is it focus on the word would be helpful? Absolutely. Um, and, but it's how we approach scripture that's very important. Um, those of you who went to the retreat, you know, we did a whole session on Bible study. You remember that? And uh, the, the critical thing in Bible study is to approach it with the expectation that this is God speaking to me. I'm not going to examine this and decide whether or not I like it. I come into his presence for him to talk to me, to instruct me, to convict me, to enlighten me, to forgive me. So yes, God's word is central to all spiritual growth. And worship actually is the response to God's word. God has spoken and we're gonna respond in, in praise and obedience and adoration, <coughs> pardon me. But yeah, you're right, absolutely. The word of God is, is absolutely central. Yeah. <coughs> But we have to see it as him speaking. It's not something static. It's God himself speaking to us through his Holy Spirit. Yes, over here. Yes. Following up with George's question, it seems like some of the churches that are growing, the few minority that are, non-denominational churches. Yeah, I, I really, uh, he, he's saying that a lot of the churches that are growing seem to be non-denominational churches. You know, um, 
I don't know how to speak to that. I do know that sometimes we get so bogged down in bureaucracy. Uh, we get so bogged down in uh, non-essentials that we forget our primary mission, our primary good. So I'm not promoting either one. I'm just saying, I'm convinced a revival can happen in any church, you know, and may God bring revival to, to our to denominational churches as well. We need, it, we need it in all of our churches. Yeah. Yeah. Any other questions before we bring this to a close? I, I appreciate the way you listen. Uh, you've been very kind, very gracious. And uh, thanks to those of you on um, Zoom this morning. I probably have as many on Zoom as we do in the class this morning. Uh, and I understand that there's a lot of sickness going around. I mean, a lot of people are sick. And uh, I, I appreciate you guys being with us this morning. Anything else before we go? God bless you. Okay, thanks. Okay. Uh, are you back up or what do we do? No, I don't even want to come back. Up. Okay, okay. <laughs> yeah. I will go. Okay. <laughs>